and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast by the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. It is September 2023. I am Amy Slogrove, Senior Editor for the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. And in today's conversation, we will be talking about pediatric concussion. Concussion, or mild traumatic brain injury as it's otherwise known, has received much media attention in recent years. And the term concussion has even become a part of household vocabulary, mostly due to awareness related to concussion occurring in professional contact sports. But concussion can occur across a variety of settings, particularly during childhood. So I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Miriam Beauchamp, who is a full professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Montreal and a researcher at the St. Justine Hospital Research Centre, where she leads the ABC's Developmental Neuropsychology Laboratory and directs the Brain and Development Research Axis. She also holds the Canada Research Chair in Pediatric Traumatic Brain Injury. Hi, Miriam, and welcome to our podcast today. So before we dive into conversation about pediatric concussion, it would be just lovely to hear a little bit more from yourself, perhaps about how you ended up in this research area and what makes you excited about about working in the field of, of concussion and traumatic brain injury in children. Sure. And uh, I'll be completely honest with you here. I'd like to say that I always dreamed of working in pediatric concussion, but, you know, sometimes we're led into pathways in different ways and uh, we take up opportunities along the way. So actually, I did my PhD uh, working on Parkinson's disease, <laughs> so in a completely different area. But I did have a neuroimaging component to that work. And that's one of the links because neuroimaging, you know, has obviously been uh, an important part, too, of characterizing, you know, brain integrity after traumatic brain injuries. So that's one small link, but it, it, it's a little bit distant. But I also worked as a clinician. Um, I'm a neuropsychologist by training, and I worked as a neuropsychologist in a neurotrauma unit. And most of the patients we saw there were people who had acquired brain injury or specifically traumatic brain injury. Um, So that's my second link. And I did do a postdoc actually in, in Australia with one of the world leaders in pediatric concussion and traumatic brain injury, Vicky Anderson. And so obviously, you know, through her mentorship, Uh, I came to the field. But after that, you know, I really got passionate about it during my postdoc. And I could have taken a different direction afterwards when I when I became an independent researcher. But I really thought there was a lot of work to do there and that there were so many opportunities to advance the field, but also change clinical practice. And so I've stuck it with stuck with it since then. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm always fascinated um, to hear about how careers sort of converge um, into a direction and, and yeah, opportunities that, that just come along the way and, and lead you on a path. And this is yeah, such valuable work now that you're doing. Right. And it's not always linear. <laughs> it's no, not always linear. It isn't at all. That's very true. So I like to always start with the basics. And so for our audience, before we dive deeper into our topic today, let's just start off with going through what we mean when we refer to concussion, pediatric concussion specifically, what type of injuries does this include and how does this happen in children and adolescents? Of course. So concussion is actually a form of traumatic brain injury. It's what we call the mild form of it. And it occurs when there's a force that's transmitted to the brain and disrupts the function of the brain. So this can occur through a direct blow to the head, for example, if somebody gets hit or falls 
on their head. And of course, this makes the brain move in, in, in the skull and it, it can come an impact against the sides of the skull and, and that creates um, disruption and, and sometimes damage. But it could also be a bit more indirectly through uh, a hit to the body, for example, which is forceful enough so that the head is moving and the brain is moving. And there are many ways those injuries can occur. Most people will have heard or, or are familiar with what we call sports concussions. So concussions that occur in the context of sports, either through a direct hit to the head or to the body or impact you know, with with the ground, for example, or with a structure. But they also occur through falls and Falls is quite a general category. You know, it can be falls, unfortunately, down the stairs or in some countries like mine. I'm from Canada on the ice in the winter. Um, it can be from furniture, from a playground structure. So uh, from many different sources of those injuries. And uh, car accidents or motor vehicle accidents are also a source. Sometimes we associate those with more severe injuries, but they also can lead to mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. That was a super explanation. So we've just published your review um, in our October 2023 issue. And in that review, you look at the scientific literature on pediatric concussion, specifically related to outcomes following concussion and how to improve these. So from your review, what would you say are the most important pieces of information for clinicians and primary caregivers to know in general about outcomes following a concussion in a child or adolescent? Um, and then perhaps more specifically, what they should know about how to optimize the outcomes following concussion? Great. Well, I'll start with the general, the general comments. And I think there's two things. There's many things we can say, but I think I'll focus on two. And one of them is there really is a lot of heterogeneity. Um, really, no two concussions are alike. And the manifestations of those injuries can be really drastically different from one child or one individual even to another. And whereas some might have no symptoms, you know, they might have sustained the injury. We know it's a concussion, but within hours, they seem fine and they don't report any symptoms. Others might experience symptoms and difficulties for days, weeks, and in a, in a minority of cases for months after the concussion. And the symptoms themselves can be really different. One person might have cognitive symptoms, so they might be confused or have difficulty concentrating, while another might have physical symptoms, for example, balance problems or uh, difficulties with their vision, for example. So, you know, it can go in really a lot of different directions. And of course, this logically means that no two trajectories are alike and treatment plans can be very different and need to be tailored to those individuals and what they're presenting. And the second more general point I would make is something we sometimes tend to forget, perhaps especially when we work clinically with people who do have difficulties, is that generally they do have a favorable outcome. You know, many know this, but it's it's often easy to forget the sort of more positive messaging. And uh, of course, th th there can be concern that, the, you know, children aren't feeling well afterwards. But about 70% recover, you know, well within a month of their injury, leaving a smaller portion who can have symptoms for a longer portion of time. And of course, we need to pay attention to those. But I, I like to bring back that the majority, you know, of people do recover well. That's really helpful, Miriam, because I think um, as care providers or even as parents, you know, we, we maybe want to err too much on the side of caution sometimes. I guess what I took from your article at the end of the day is that it's a balance between not dismissing the, the, the impacts of concussive events, but at the same time also not being too overly protective in terms of restricting and limiting children and adolescents in their activities, either to prevent the event or 
after the event sort of overrest and and the, and the actual negative potential consequences of that. So I think that's that's really a, a good you know strong take home message from your paper and from this discussion is that for the majority of children and and young people the outcome will be positive, but it's it's certainly still something to pay attention to and to respond to appropriately. Absolutely. And um, you, you touched upon, you know, ways to optimize outcome. So maybe I'll, I'll just say a few points about that. Obviously, one part of it is offering the right treatments to go with those, those profiles, those trajectories. But treatment or intervention is not all of it. And in the paper and today, you know, I'll highlight that prevention doesn't seem like a way to optimize outcome because it occurs before. But you know, we can use the old saying, prevention is the best medicine. Avoiding a concussion is the best outcome you can have. I think we're going to come back to it later. And we, we do talk about in the paper ways to do that. Identification or, or diagnosis is also a big part of it. Misdiagnosis can lead, you know, if a concussion goes undetected, uh, there's a risk of repeat injuries, there's a risk of prolonged recovery. So we really do need to pay attention to how we are. Are we being, are we good at detecting these injuries. And we talk in the paper about different prognostic factors, different predictors of outcome. And from a research perspective, you know, we need to have a fundamental understanding of these predictors, these factors or modifiers of outcome. But from a clinical perspective, it's really about identifying risk factors. Who are the children who show signs or have characteristics that may put them at risk for prolonged recovery or for for more severe symptoms and identifying those kids so that they're very rapidly put on the on the track to recovery with the right resources. And of course, the right treatments and the right interventions, focusing on what symptoms they're presenting. We do, because there can be such a range of symptoms, it might require multidisciplinary resources, but that doesn't mean that all those resources are necessary for each individual, right? We want to use our resources wisely, I would say. That's great. I think I, I really sort of appreciated that piece in the in your paper as well on that, you know, kind of a one size fits all approach doesn't doesn't work, that there is so much heterogeneity. But the, at the same time, we sort of need guidance and some kind of harmonization around like these different trajectories, what what is optimal um, for them and sort of grappling with the with the gray in the in the in the need also for standardization. That's great. So sort of with your long term yeah, perspective in this field, it would be really interesting to hear about what you've seen change in the understanding of concussion in children and adolescents. Um, and how best to support them after a, a, a concussion event. You know, reflecting on where we've come from and where we are and where we might be going, I would sort of want to touch upon the idea of extremes. I think that the field has gone through some extremes and is finding a balance. So I'll give just maybe two or three examples of that. But We've gone in terms of management of concussion and, and treatment or intervention from extremes in terms of our recommendations for rest and physical activity. So not so long ago, uh, the recommendation or, or the thought was that kids and, and, and youth with concussions should really be at complete rest after their injury, often in a dark room with no sensory stimulation and uh, no activity whatsoever. And we know now that actually that's a good way to have poor outcome just in terms of, you know, even being removed from one's social activities and having no stimulation. You know, if you think about sitting 
in a dark room for a few days, I don't think anybody, you know, finds that enjoyable, of course. So a lot of psychological uh, consequences to those extreme recommendations that are no longer valid. And, you know, we've gone from that to very recently with the updated recommendations to the idea of relative rest and tolerating some amount of activity, not risky, not risky activity, not risky behaviors, but, you know, the idea of active rehabilitation and recovery and uh, engaging very rapidly in some low risk activities that are also stimulating and rewarding. And perhaps the other extreme I would just mention that, you know, we've come from is, uh, you know, I think we started in the field from this idea that uh, mild traumatic brain injury or concussion is benign and has no consequences. So I think people worked very hard over the years to convince <laughs> to convince uh, others, to convince researchers, clinicians, and policymakers that they do have consequences that deserve attention and that deserve treatment. Um, so we've gone from this idea that there's we don't have to pay any attention to them to a somewhat catastrophizing view of it, you know, where people, I think, got very concerned and probably overly concerned and, and anxious about it. And I think we're, we're finding some middle ground now. Just fascinating to, to hear and to kind of see sort of how that pendulum has swung and hopefully we're finding a, a middle ground there. So let's go back to the prevention piece that you raised earlier and you really emphasize this in the review, the importance of prevention of concussion. So let's maybe sort of hear from you what you think the missed opportunities are for prevention or where, where could we act more proactively in prevention of these concussion events for children? Yeah, I mean, prevention is often unfortunately relegated to an afterthought, right? It's sort of the thing, even I'm guilty of it. Sometimes I present things on outcomes and then at the end I say, oh, and we should prevent these injuries. So we tried to make a, an effort in the paper to put it first in the paper, say, well, you know, let's talk about prevention first. I think there's still a lot of work to do just in terms of knowledge translation, actually. You know, I think we have the impression, um, I'll, I'll talk specifically about sports concussion because a lot of work has been done there. I think we have the impression that the message has gotten out to coaches and teams and and sports organizations and that, you know, we're done with that and, and, and people know about it and know the risks and know how to prevent the injuries and identify them. But I think, you know, that's an ongoing effort. That's, that's work that needs to be done and redone and, and make sure that the message is long term and that when leaders of sports organizations or coaches change, that the message stays. So that's one piece. And in terms of missed opportunities, I mean, I do think there's some missed opportunities in terms of policy making. Some of the strongest evidence in prevention of sports concussions comes from studies where they've looked at changes in regulations or rules in terms of contact sports, for example. I'm from Canada, so there's a lot of hockey here, ice hockey, and, you know, rules in terms of limiting body checking, uh, so limiting hits to the body in youth or, or banning them entirely at certain ages have had an impact and I think there's some work to do with our decision makers and policy makers to show them that actually they can help enact those rules and changes. It's often hard to have an impact from the bottom up in terms of real regulation changes. But when decision makers and policy makers get involved, they can really help us to, to make those changes at a broader, whether it's municipal or, or, or regional or a national level. And maybe just so that we also talk about other types of injuries, not just sports ones. There's lots of work done on falls, but it's not just about how do we prevent falls. It's what kinds of falls are leading to these injuries. And there's some work done actually 
mostly in, in little kids about getting a more fine-grained analysis of what are the falls? Where are children falling from? What surfaces are they falling onto? What are the actions that lead to these falls? Are they are, are little kids in their parents' arms? Is it falls from a playground structure? Because that's where we can actually have more concrete ideas and targets for prevention. I'll just say one thing anecdotally. So this this is not study results. This is anecdotal. But in one of the studies we did, we were surprised because we found that a lot of the kids in the study had fallen from shopping carts. So this is not data, but it made me reflect on have we documented this? Do we know how many there are? Is this a prevention target? So the data will have to guide us, obviously, but I think we can go further into what the targets are. Yeah, that's great. Often research starts from the anecdotes <laughs> and leads the research questions. Yeah, that's great. And so where do you see this field of research heading? Where is it well, Yeah, where is it going to? What are the exciting areas to look out for? So for so one thing, I think we're getting to the stage where both clinicians and researchers are, are getting comfortable with the fact that it is heterogeneous condition and requires very different management. I think we're going to see more and more innovative ways of drawing on that, drawing on those differences so that interventions are designed and developed that are tailored to different profiles and we can send people to the right interventions much more quickly. So this idea of patient-oriented care and alongside that, I think the implementation science part will be exciting in the next few years. I think we we still need to argue for, you know, stronger evidence for interventions, but also implementation of those interventions. I think once they're validated, once we've shown that they work, can they be translated? And what, what are the obstacles to that translation to clinic? And I, I think there's a lot of work for the implementation scientists there to help us out. There's no doubt, I think, that the area of biomarker research, there's a lot of work being done at that currently, whether it be neuroimaging or we talk about in the paper fluid biomarkers, you know, markers in saliva or in blood, for example. This is a very active area of research. And although I don't think it's realistic to think we will find the one diagnostic or prognostic biomarker, I think that we, in the coming years, will get to maybe a set of them, a set of them that, that are things that we can do in the clinic that might indicate risk, for example, or, or be more sensitive to the injuries. And maybe the other thing I would say, I think while the focus has been a lot on sports concussion, I think that where we're going now is is broadening the field, you know, expanding the spotlight, expanding that focus to other portions of the population, other mechanisms of injury, but also some groups of the population. You know, I have a particular interest in early childhood concussion, but it's a group that hasn't been studied very much. But others are focusing also on more vulnerable groups, you know, underprivileged families, for example, people who are in regions of a country that don't have as many resources, you know, what are what are the characteristics of the children and youth who have those injuries and how how are we going to understand those types of injuries in some groups, I think is another piece of the puzzle. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think we haven't really touched on that at all about kind of you know, areas where they just are sort of less resources to protect against it, identify and, and, and where the injuries might also be quite, of quite a different nature. Even globally, you know, in terms of countries, you know, a lot of the, the work comes from high income countries. And uh, I hope that the field will go in the direction where we have a better sense of 
the characteristics and the outcomes of these injuries elsewhere and that, you know, there's greater crosstalk even internationally. And so just before we end, um, this has been lovely, but is there anything else um, you would like to be sure that people take take away with them, whether it's clinicians, parents, policymakers, in knowing how to prevent or, or support children that have had concussive events? Uh, maybe I'd just say let's let's remind ourselves that a little can go a long way. You know, concussions are largely preventable and treatable with relatively simple actions and rules sometimes with early recognition and tracking of, of symptoms and identifying those at risk. And I think that while many of the research efforts that we see and that are fascinating and that will help us advance, uh, do include complex methodologies, you know, biomarkers, neuroimaging. There are also very small efforts that we can make to improve the outcome for these children and youth in the clinic, reflecting on how, what information we're giving to them, what messaging we have for those families are things that anybody can do. We don't have to wait for, you know, a big study to come out to know that we can reflect on our, our own actions and our own practice and what we can do better to just better inform better support uh, families through through this process. And maybe we can just end with our positive message, not to forget that most recover well. And we can certainly, you know, be bearers of that good news towards others and towards families um, and keep thinking about that and how that might help us in our research and our clinic. This has been so valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for leading the paper to our listeners, the review um, by Dr. Beauchamp and colleagues on improving outcomes after pediatric concussion, challenges and possibilities is now available at thelancet.com. Whatever your role is in child and adolescent health, I'd encourage you to take a look at it. It's comprehensive, but a very accessible read with beautiful figures consolidating the clinical and scientific knowledge on the topic. And please also remember that you can subscribe to In Conversation with the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health um, wherever you usually get your podcasts. Thank you.